And let's turn to the last chapter of Second Corinthians. We'll wrap it up tonight. The Lord willing. I think I don't think it's going to be much of a difficult time for us to get through the whole chapter. There's only 14 verses. But it's a lot of good stuff in here, so we'll uh, see what we can do to move our way through it. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, again, ends the letter that Paul has been writing to the Corinthian church, his second letter that we have. There was another letter that apparently Paul wrote that we do not have. Paul also had intended to visit Corinth on more than one occasion, but wasn't able to. And you may remember in our, in our previous studies that uh, some of the Corinthians were angry that Paul didn't come and started accusing him of not being uh, really the, the apostle that he had said that he is because of that and other things that they complained about. His uh, ability to speak like some of the great orators of the day. Uh, his appearance was not exactly what they had thought of when they thought of a great man of God. But all of their assumptions were wrong, and Paul had spent a great deal of time talking about that very fact in the last couple of three chapters, and this chapter is going to end with some more of that, but some really very good things as well that uh, he wants to share with them before he closes this great letter. So verse 1 of chapter 13, Paul continues with that same argument. He says, this will be the third time I am coming to you. By, mouth, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word should be established. Now here he's quoting Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. And it's a quote from the Old Testament Scriptures that Paul is using to, to remind them that they need to have witnesses. If they're going to be accusing Paul of anything, there better be two or more witnesses that will corroborate what is being said. And uh, that's a very, very biblical approach. Uh, Jesus used that approach in Matthew chapter 18 where he talked about uh, going to a brother who's offended you and that uh, if that one brother who you go to privately doesn't respond well, then you take it to the church. Uh, and uh, two or three uh, of the members of the church are to be gathered together to hear your case. So always in the presence of two or more witnesses, a, an argument must be uh, discussed uh, so that truth can be determined by the, the people who are listening to the conversation, listening to the arguments, and making the proper decision based on that. Still a very biblical thing for all of us to participate in whenever we're dealing with church discipline or whenever we're dealing with arguments that might come up from time to time amongst ourselves. Hopefully that doesn't happen. But occasionally that can happen, and when it does, it should be handled properly. Paul, again, is just using the Scriptures to demonstrate that he is indeed the apostle that he calls himself to be. Verse 2 says, I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest, that if I come again I will not spare, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. So Paul again is saying, I am an apostle of Christ, and there are those who have argued that they don't believe me to be so, but there are also those who have uh, entered into sin within the church at Corinth. And remember in his first letter, uh, there were many sins that Paul addressed. Uh, the man who was sleeping with his father's wife. They were getting drunk at the communion table. They accepted uh, things that were, were not to be acceptable by the church 
with regard to uh, proper uh, relationships and, and dealing with uh, sin, they weren't doing a very good job of it at all. And Paul is saying here that when I come, I'm going to make sure that you understand that those who have sinned and all the rest who have not sinned will be subject to the authority that I have in Christ Jesus to both reconcile and to both uh, condemn those who are in sin and commend those who are doing well. He has that authority as the apostle, and he's going to use that authority when he gets there. So he's writing this to warn them, really, that he, although he doesn't want to come uh, to set them straight, he'd rather have them take care of those things before he comes. Like they had apparently done where he addressed one of those other issues that I just mentioned, the uh, situation where the man had taken his father's wife, apparently that man had repented after they had uh, disciplined him and excommunicated him from the church with the purpose of bringing him back into fellowship. And that effort was successful and Paul commended them for that. He talked about the godly repentance, that le uh, uh, sorrow that leads to repentance, that needs not to be repented of in chapter uh, 7. Uh, and here in this chapter, he's saying again, he's going to come with that purpose of straightening out those who need to be straightened out, if that's still the case. But they apparently were seeking proof that he is of Christ, and that Christ is speaking through him. And so he's reminding them that he definitely is in Christ, and Christ is in him. And he's going to use a bit of a, a, a reversal on them, in, in a sense, by the statement that he makes in a few uh, verses from this. But he says in verse 4, For though he, Jesus, was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Paul is saying when Jesus was on this earth as a man in the weakness of flesh, he had to endure all that suffering. He had to endure all that torment, all that pain by going to the cross, being crucified in that weakness. And yet because he was willing to do that and being raised from the dead, as Paul had described in his previous writing, that he lives by the power of God, no longer in weakness. And he says, for that reason, although we are weak in him, he had said earlier in chapter 12, when I am weak, then he is strong, and his strength empowers us. And that's what Paul is saying here. We shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Then he says in verse 5, a very important verse of Scripture, where he says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Verses 5 and 6 together is an argument where Paul is saying that they really should apply the same standard to themselves as they were applying to him. They were thinking that he was disqualified from being an apostle, and Paul is reversing that right back on them and saying, I know I am qualified because I have examined myself, and I have tested my faith. I have come to the 
conclusion that I am in Christ and Christ is in me. And I want you all to experience that same confidence. And you should examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Paul will say elsewhere that we are to examine ourselves during the time of taking the communion. That's another place where he uses the same word, examine yourselves. But he tells us elsewhere that we are to uh, look to make sure to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. So there's a sense in which we need to be very careful in assessing what we believe, where we stand with Christ. Are we truly following Christ? You know, most of us should be able to say that we are crucified with Christ, nevertheless we live. Yet not us, but Christ lives in us. In the life that we now live, we now live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what Paul said of himself. We should be also able to say that as well. We should be able to say, I die daily. We should be able to say uh, that we are able to reckon ourselves dead unto sin and alive unto Christ. We should be able to confess with our lips and believe in our heart and knowing that we have confessed with our lips and that we do believe in our heart that we are saved. That is something that we should always look at continually. Are we in the faith? Are we in Christ? And are we certain that Christ is in me? That Christ is in you? That Christ is in all of us who believe? Now, that's an interesting statement. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Paul tells us elsewhere. But isn't it so that we have the Spirit of God in us? How can it be then that Christ is in us? What does that mean? Does it mean that they both are in us? Yes, it certainly does. It also is stated elsewhere that the Father is in us. And it also says that we are in Him. And that is a wonderful, beautiful thing that Jesus himself spoke of, remember in John's Gospel, chapter 17, if you'll turn with me, we'll read a portion of what that prayer that Jesus made to his Father. In that prayer, he had said some remarkable things about himself, uh, being uh, together with the Father with great glory, and he wanted so much to have that glory re restored once again, that he would be with the Father. And he wanted to do that, obviously, because it was his home. His father and he are one. And he wanted to be reunited with him in that great glory that he had once before he became a man. But while he was with those in the world, he was a man in the flesh. And he longed to have that glorious experience once again of the fellowship with the father. But he goes on in that prayer, after having spoken of his desire to be with God, he said in verse 17 of chapter 17, praying to his Father about his disciples, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. That word sanctify is a special word that implies for us as believers that we can be made Holy. That's what sanctification is. There is a holiness that we are to 
ascribe to and attain in our everyday lives in these bodies that we now live in, we are not wholly sanctified, but we are working toward that goal. And ultimately, because Christ is in us and we are in Him, we can know that that goal will be indeed achieved. That's why Paul was able to say in Philippians, I press on to the high mark of the call of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Well, in this again priestly prayer of our Lord, this high priestly prayer in chapter 17 of John's Gospel, he goes on in verse 20 to say, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Notice that Jesus is saying there's a unity that we all have in Christ Jesus because of his work on the cross, his going to the Father, his having been raised from the dead, ascending to the Father, has made it so that we can be in him and he in us. And we all are one with him and with the Father. There is a bonding that can only take place by faith. Those who have accepted Christ as their Lord and their Savior are in Christ, and He is in us. There should be no mistake that that is the intent of Jesus, that is the uh, word that is given to us in the New Testament, that we are in Christ and He is in us. And that is what we now know to be the case because we have believed in Him. We've accepted by faith that which he has accomplished for us. And so we are indeed in Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here is because he knows he is in Christ, he has confidence that he will not be disqualified or to fail the test in other translations is well said. I'm not going to fail the test because he has enabled me to take that test and get an A-plus in it because of the fact that He has done for me and continues to do that which I need Him to do by His Spirit dwelling in me to enable me to accomplish His will in my life and to know His love for me. And it's a great love. And because He first loved us, we then can indeed love Him. And that is why we have no Doubt, at least if we know that He is our Savior, and if we know that what He has done for us is irrevocable, then when we're told to examine ourselves, and we should, it is for the purpose not for gaining salvation, but to make sure that we're staying on that same track that we should be on that will please our God throughout our days. That is what we should be doing when we examine ourselves. We should be looking at how are we treating others? How are we dealing with uh, our faith, our walk with Christ? Are we serving the Lord with gladness? Are we doing those things that we should be doing for His glory? That's a good self-examination. We all should be doing that on a daily basis. 
Paul is just saying here, though, for these people in Corinth who were accusing him of not being a true apostle, that they should examine themselves instead of trying to examine him. He's putting it back on them to say, are you sure you know what you're talking about? I know that I'm talking truth, Paul says. I know whom I have believed, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says that also elsewhere. It is true that we can have that kind of faith to know that we are indeed saved to the uttermost. Paul had that faith, had that expectation for them as well. But they didn't have that same expectation for him. And that really troubled Paul a great deal. And that's why he said these things that we've just read in these first few verses. Now in verse 7, Paul continues by saying, Now I pray to God that you do no evil, nor that... Let me repeat that. Now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified, and I would put in parentheses, in their sight. Again, he seems disqualified or that he failed their test. But that's not the case at all. As far as God is concerned, he was doing exactly what he knew was his perfect will. And that was what Paul always wanted to do, God's perfect will. But he's praying here to God that they don't do anything that would hinder their walk. And he doesn't want them to think that he has been disqualified or doesn't have the approval of God. He wants them to do what is honorable by accepting what he has told them is the truth about himself. For we can do nothing against the truth, he says in verse 8, but for the truth. Remember, as we read the prayer of Jesus, Jesus had said, Thy word is truth. And that is the word of God that we have before us. Paul conveyed the word of God to those Corinthian church members and to all of the churches where he came and brought the gospel message. He brought them the word of truth. Some of them did believe this, but not all of them. And again, that was a very, very difficult thing for Paul to have to deal with. And so he's dealt with these things in a rather stern approach, but necessary in this letter. Far better that they would receive this reprimand from Paul by writing before he actually appears to them in person, in the hope that while they read this letter, they'll realize their error and repent from that so that by the time he does get there, things will be much better and he won't have to do anything further than this. That is his goal. He doesn't want to discipline them. He wants to edify them. And that is a very, very important thing from Paul's perspective. Remember, we saw that throughout the first letter that Paul over and over again emphasized the fact that they should seek to edify one another in love. And that's what Paul is doing here in this letter and has done in the past with the first letter that he wrote. He would have done that in person but he couldn't get to them when he wanted to. And now he's going to be hopefully coming again to set the record straight finally. And frankly, we aren't, we aren't told much about the Corinthian church beyond what we have in these two letters. 
and the fact that there are some of the greatest writers of the first and second centuries that came from Corinth and Athens, that area of Achaia, Sancria, that region where Paul was ministering to the Corinthian church for 18 months there in Corinth, that region became a very strong and powerful center in the early years of the church for great Christian writers and doctrine and faith to be established in that area. So I'm convinced that Corinth got it down after Paul had finished with this letter. Even though we're not really given that detail in the Word of God, we see historically that that must have been so. Well, he goes on in verse 9 to say, For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. And this also we pray, that you may be made complete. And I believe they were. Made complete, mature, is another way of saying the same word in the Greek language uh, that we have here as complete or perfect. He wanted his church to be without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish, a chaste virgin that he could present to the Lord, made complete, made whole. It's a desire of every good church leadership to have the flock of Christ become a very, very strong in the faith, complete body of believers. That's my goal. That's why we teach the Word of God. That's why we invite people to come and participate in meetings like this and gatherings together in Sunday morning worship so that we can proclaim the truth of God's, God's Word and to experience the fellowship with each other and with God that causes us to, encourages us to grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to grow in our faith and to want more and more to love one another and to serve one another and to glorify our King of kings and Lord of lords. That is what makes us complete. And I pray that we'll continue moving forward in that direction. Even the church at Thessalonica, which is a church that we've just started to read about on our Sunday morning uh, teachings, and we'll continue to do that. But in Thessalonica, Paul had commended the church there of the great love they had for one another. But then he goes on to say, but you should be doing it more and more. And that's exactly the emphasis that we always should have in this present day, especially with the way things are going on. We need to be together, united, in love, so that we can present the gospel to anyone who would come by faith to receive that which we have, this light that we have. Let it shine brightly. Let it be spread abroad in a way that will glorify our God. Paul was doing that, and Paul was emphasizing that very need for the Corinthian church to also be made complete so that they too can receive the blessings that are theirs and ours if we only would be obedient to the commands of our Lord to love one another as He loved us and to love our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Verse 10 says, Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. You see again, Paul is saying, I want to edify you. I don't want to destroy you. I don't want to put you down. I don't want to cause you to feel 
so badly about yourselves that you're never ever going to recover from that. I'm doing these things, I'm saying these things to lift you back up to a place where you should be in the Lord's presence and under his loving care. He writes these things even though they're sharp words, they're stern words. Paul is saying it's necessary. It's part of what needs to be done to bring about that which God wants in us. If we need to be corrected, we should be willing to let that correction be meted out before us in a way that will bring glory to Him. It should always be done in love. Paul is over and over again emphasizing the fact that he has said these things in love because he wanted them to know that he truly did. And that's really the heart of any church leader that has a love for the people, the flock that he has to take care of. I've been privileged to be a pastor for these 22 years and I know that God has just blessed me so very, very much with a flock that is a loving, caring group of individuals who love the Lord. There have been changes over time. There have been things that have happened that uh, I would have loved to have seen that wouldn't have happened if I had maybe done differently or if others had done differently. But all, all in all, what I see in our church is a blessed church family. And that's one of the things that causes me great joy. You know, when Jesus told Peter to feed his flock, to tend his sheep, those are commands that Peter, I'm sure, took very seriously. They're commands that I believe God has given to me as a pastor of the church, and I take them very seriously as well. I want the flock to be fed, and I want the flock to feed other members of the flock, to pass it on. It should be something that is caught not just taught. That's what Christianity is all about. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. And it is caught more than it is taught. Oh, it's nice to be able to speak the Word of God. And that is a great privilege that God gives us. But it is also necessary for people to see that we are believers by what we do. When James said, be doers of the Word and not hearers only, that's what he meant. And if we do what we hear then others will catch what we've got. That's the simple principle by which we need to live for our Lord through these last days. Finally, my brethren, he says in verse 11, farewell, become complete. There it is again. He said in verse 10 that it was his desire that, the, or verse 9 rather, that they would be made complete. And now he's saying in verse 11, be complete. It's their responsibility as well as the responsibility of others to move them in that direction. So it's our responsibility to, to be complete as well as to emphasize to others that they need to move in that same direction as well. Be of good comfort, he says. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. That's a great promise right there. The God of love and peace will be with you. He is in you. He is with you. You are in Him. You are with Him. There is a unity, a bond, a way that we have been bound together by faith 
in this relationship that we have with God the Father through His Son, Jesus, our Lord, cannot be taken away. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He holds you in the palm of His hand. He will never let you go. He is your God. And there is nothing that can separate you from His love, neither height nor depth nor principalities nor things coming nor things present nor things to come. Oh, there's nothing that can separate you from His love. He will perfect in you that which He has begun. That's His promise. That's His great love for us. Revealed through our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be of good comfort. He is the God of all comfort. Remember He said back in the first chapter of this great letter, the God of all comfort comforts us with comfort so that we can comfort those who are in need of comfort also. It is a process that we should be involved with as we minister to one another. That's body ministry. That should continue always. So he is the God of all comfort. He's saying we should be of good comfort because he is indeed the God of all comfort. And he says that we should be of one mind. And remember in Philippians, Paul tells us in chapter 2 that we should have the mind of Christ who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he left him his estate. He humbled himself and became like one of us. That's the mind of God. That's the mind of Christ. A mind that is willing to do the will of the Father, to be willing to humble oneself in his sight. And when we humble ourselves, he is willing then to lift us up, to exalt us above measure. But he is insisting here for all of us, as well as the Corinthian church, as well as the Thessalonian church, as well as the Ephesian church or any other churches, wherever they may be, we are to be of one mind and we are to live in peace with one another and as much as it is possible with all men. Live in peace. Be of one mind. Be of good comfort. And the God of love and peace will be with you. That's a great promise. He goes on to say, Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, he says that one other place in First Thessalonians as well, and near the end of that letter. And it's not exactly something that you find happening around our nation, at least, in our communities. We don't really greet one another with holy kisses. We might do a lot of hugging or handshaking. Those are appropriate. Hugging needs to be done with respect and with care, but it is something that we endorse, we encourage, but it needs to be done with this in mind. It needs to be holy. There are some who take that for granted, and quite frankly, it's easy to forget our place when we're greeting somebody. And I don't want to ever give the impression, I hope that none of you give the impression when you're greeting somebody that you're doing it with anything more in mind than a bond of love that is found in Christ Jesus alone and nothing more. A holy kiss that was done in that generation, in that culture. Uh, there are cultures that still do that today. and In the Middle East you'll find men with men usually greeting one another with a kiss on each alternate cheek. It's a greeting that is considered to be acceptable. We don't do that in this country, typically. I don't think it's wrong if it's done with 
that kind of respect for the Word of God and the holiness of God. And it's appropriate whenever it's done that way. But Paul is emphasizing this is something that you should be doing because you are brothers and sisters in the Lord. You are family. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Make sure that you have that relationship with one another that is based upon a holiness, a love for God. And that is why Paul says it here, that that's how we should be greeting one another, to make sure that we don't offend one another, to don't don't give one another the impression that we think less of them than we ought, or more of them than we ought. Greet one another with holiness. And then he says in verse 13, all the saints greet you. There were many with Paul who were in agreement with what Paul was writing here. In this letter, he was writing it from Ephesus and he was telling them and all the saints who were with him and many of them had been involved with the Corinthian church like Aquila and Priscilla and others as well that knew the men and women at Corinth, knew what was going on in that particular church that was praying with Paul fervently on their behalf that they would receive this letter and that they would receive uh, the love of Christ in a way that would bring glory to God. All the saints greet you. And that's a wonderful thing that Paul included those others who were there with him to let the Corinthian church know that there's more than just him involved in this letter, that all of the saints are well aware of what Paul has been writing, and I'm sure we're in agreement with what Paul was saying in this great letter. Finally, he says in verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. The Trinity of God in this last one verse the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the communion of the Holy Spirit. Paul emphasized the triune nature of the living God. He is one God, representing himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, manifest in those three persons, each individually unique, but all one, all the same God. They are and always have been the God of the Old Testament and they are the God of the New Testament. The God who created all things. The second person of the Trinity. We're told Jesus was the one in the Godhead that created all things. All things were made by Him. Nothing was made that was made. The Father is the one who made the whole plan and put it into motion. He sent His Son for that purpose, to complete the work that He had envisioned, that He had wanted to be done throughout the ages from the very beginning of time. And the Holy Spirit, who hovered over the waters as the creation was taking place, who was part in that creation experience, He was present there. And all three were participating in that very great creation of man himself. When the word of God spoke, let us make man in our image, he was speaking to the other two persons in the Godhead. There is no question that there is only one God, but in three persons he has represented himself, 
over and over and over again in the Word of God, we see that to be the case. Here again, Paul ends this great letter with a reference to the triune nature of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's filled with grace. John writes in this first chapter of his uh, great apostle, uh, uh, great gospel record, that Moses came, and Moses came and gave the law, but Jesus gave grace, and we have received that grace, grace upon grace, the grace from our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the love of God. We love Him because He first loved us. And God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we have the communion or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us. He is with us and He is in us. And He intercedes on our behalf. He speaks on our behalf when we don't have the words to speak. He teaches us. He guides us. He comforts us. He is in fellowship with us daily. We have the triune God right here available always at our disposal. In us, with us, for us. Complete. And He makes us complete in Him. That's so very wonderful news. That's what Paul wanted to convey to the Corinthian church. These two letters comprise something of great importance for the church in the world today. Remember, he gave in 1 Corinthians one of the most remarkable statements regarding the body of Christ. One of the most important statements regarding the gifts of the Lord, the spiritual gifts. He gave great words of encouragement to the Corinthian church and to us in very many different ways. Talked about a communion. Talked about the, the fact that we are with one another the bride of Christ and we will be able eventually to be caught up together with all of the other church members in the air at that great moment of the rapture of the church. Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the great news of the resurrection, all of these things he wrote in these two letters and it is here that we can go to to get the majority of information on those subjects. He covers a lot of detail in these two letters that aren't necessarily covered elsewhere and I'm so grateful for that. Even though he had to reprimand them, even though he had to be very hard in his speaking to their individual and corporate sins. He still loved them, and he demonstrated that love in this great passage that we've looked at tonight and in the weeks that we have been studying this great word. So be thankful that Paul included these two letters in a way that would be preserved so that we could have them available to us tonight and read it continually in the hours and days ahead as you are able to. It's always good to go back and reread uh, the Word of God to make sure that you understand, make sure that you are fully aware of what God has done for you. It's all here in the book. Grace and peace, my friends. God bless.